More extortion scams, more crypto theft, and a bug fix for a bug fix. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth, and he is Paul Ducklin. Paul, how do you do? I am super duper, thank you, Douglas. Well, we like to start the show with a little bit of tech history, and I'd like to remind you that this week... In 2007, the first-generation iPhone was released in the United States at a time when most high-end phones were selling for $200 with a two-year wireless service contract. The iPhone started at $500 with a two-year contract. It also sported a slower connection speed than many phones at the time, 2.5G or Edge versus 3G. Still, two and a half months after its release, Apple had sold a million iPhones in the U.S. alone. Yes, I'd forgotten that thorny detail of the 2.5 Edge. Yep. I just remember thinking, you cannot be serious. Because like, I was in Oz at the time, and they were expensive. I think that was still the era when I was just hanging on to my Edge device, which was, I keep calling it a jam jar, but it was actually called a jazz jar or a jazz jam or something. One of those sliding <laughs> Windows C yep. phones. I was just the only person in the world that loved it. So I figured, well, someone has to. You could write your own software for it. You just compile the code and put it on there. And I remember thinking this app store, this only two and a half G, super expensive, it'll never catch on. Mm -hmm. Well, the world has never been the same since, that's for sure. It has not. All right, speaking of the world not being the same, we've got more scams. This one, why don't I just read from the FTC about this scam? The FTC, the Federal Trade Commission in the United States says... The criminals usually work something like this. A scammer poses as a potential romantic partner on an LGBTQ plus dating app, chats with you, quickly sends explicit photos, and asks for similar photos in return. If you send photos, the blackmail begins. They threaten to share your conversation and photos with your friends, family, or employer unless you pay, usually by gift card. Other scammers threaten people who are closeted or not yet fully out as LGBTQ plus. They may pressure you to pay up or be outed, claiming they'll ruin your life by exposing explicit photos or conversations. Whatever their angle, they're after one thing, your money. Nice people here, right? Yeah, this is truly awful, isn't it? And what particularly caught me about this story is a couple of years ago, the big thing of this sort, as you'll remember, was what became known as sextortion or porn scamming, where the crooks would say, hey, We've got some screenshots of you watching porn, and we turned on your webcam at the same time. We were able to do this because we implanted malware in, on your computer. Here's some proof. Hey, we got your phone number and your password and your home address. They never show you the video, of course, because they course, actually yep. don't have it. Yep. Send us the money. Exactly the same story, except that in that case, we were able to go to people and say, all a pack of lies, just forget it. Unfortunately, this is kind of exactly the opposite, isn't it? They have got the photo. Unfortunately, you sent it to them, maybe thinking, well, I'm sure I can trust this person. Or maybe they've just got the gift of the gab and they talked you into it. In the same way that traditional romance scammers, they don't want explicit photos for blackmail. They want you to fall in love with them for the long term so they can milk you for money for weeks, months, years even. But it is tricky that we have this one kind of sexually related extortion scam where we can tell people, don't panic, they can't blackmail because you actually don't have the photo. 
And this is an example where, unfortunately, it's exactly the other way around, because they do have the photo. But the one thing you should still not do is pay the money, because how do you ever know they are going to delete that photo? Even worse, how do you know, even if they actually are, I can't believe I'm going to use these words, trustworthy crooks, <laughs> even if their intention is to delete the photo, how do you know they haven't had a data breach? They could have lost the data already because dishonor among thieves, crooks falling out with one another is common enough. We saw that with the Conti ransomware gang, affiliates leaking a whole load of stuff because they'd fallen out with the people at the core of the group, apparently. And lots of cyber crooks have poor operational security themselves. And there's been any number of cases in the past where crooks either ended up getting bust or ended up giving away the secrets of their malware because their systems were where they were supposedly keeping all the secrets were wide open anyway. Yeah, at a very personal and uncertain time in people's lives, of course, when they've finally trusted someone they've never met and then this happens. So that's one of our tips. Don't pay the blackmail money. Another tip, consider using your favorite search engine for a reverse image search. Yes, lots of people recommend that for all sorts of scams. It's very common that they will gain your trust by picking an online dating profile of someone that they've prejudged you'd probably quite like. They go and find someone who actually might be a good match for you, and they rip off that person's profile, and they come steaming in pretending to be that person, which gets them off to a very good start when it comes to romantic machinations, doesn't it? And so if you do a reverse image search and somebody else's profile comes up, bingo, you've busted them. The bad news is that you can't use that to prove anything about the people. In other words, if you do the reverse search and nothing comes up, it doesn't mean that the person you're speaking to really is the original owner of that photograph. But we have had people on Naked Security commenting saying, I got one of these, I did a reverse image search, instantly came out in the wash. It worked really well for me. You might trip the crook up at the very, very, very first hurdle. Yeah, this is. I think I shared this in one of the first podcast episodes we did um, where we were trying to rent a ski house and the place we were trying to rent looked a little too good to be true for the price. And I, um, my wife called the person to ask them about it and clearly woke someone up in the middle of the night on the other side of the world. And as she was doing that, I dropped the image into a reverse image search and it was uh, like a Ritz Carlton in Denver or something like that. It was like, it was not even close to what we were trying to rent. So that this works beyond just romance scams. It works for anything that just smells kind of fishy and has images associated with it. Yes. Okay, and then we have be aware before you share. Yes, that's one of our little jingles. It's easy to remember. And in fact, it's not just true for these sexual extortion scams. Although, as you say, it's especially troubling and evil sounding in such cases. But it's absolutely true in all cases. Where there's someone that you're not sure about, don't give out information because you can't get it back later. Once you've handed over the data, then you don't just have to trust them. You have to trust their computer, their own attitude to cybersecurity and everything. That dovetails nicely with our next tip, which is if in doubt, don't give it out. Yes, I know some people say, oh, well, that sounds like you're victim blaming. Once you hand out your data, you can ask for it back, but you can't really do much more than that. It's trivial to share stuff. It's as good as impossible to call it back afterwards. Okay, and then we've got some resources in the article here about how to report 
such scams um, based on the country that you live in, which is pretty handy. Yes, we put in online fraud reporting URLs for the USA, the United Kingdom, the European Union, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. The US one, which is reportfraud.ftc.gov. And the FTC, of course, is essentially consumer rights body in the United States. I was very pleasantly surprised with that site. I found it very easy to navigate. You can put in as much or as little information as you want. Obviously, if you want to keep up with it later, then you're going to have to share information that allows them to contact you back. In other words, it would be difficult to remain completely anonymous. But if you just want to say, look, I've got this scam, I must be one of a million people. But if nobody says anything, then essentially, statistically, nothing happened. You can report things and just say, I've got this URL, I've got this phone number, I've got this information, whatever. And you can provide as much or as little as you want. And although it sometimes feels like reporting this stuff probably doesn't make a difference, because obviously if you don't give your email address and your contact details, you won't get any reply to say whether it was useful or not. You have to take that on faith. And my opinion is that I don't see how it can possibly do any harm. And it may do a little bit of good. It may help the authorities to build a case against somebody where, without several corroborating reports, they might have found it very difficult to get to the legal level they needed to actually do something about what is a particularly nasty crime. Okay, well, that is FTC warns of LGBTQ plus extortion scams. Be aware before you share on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And speaking of being aware, when are we going to have one week where we're not aware of some sort of uh, crypto theft? Another $100 million vanished into thin air, Paul. Yes, I didn't realize that was a rhetorical question, Doug. <laughs> I was about to chime in and say, not this week, Doug. Yeah. <laughs> in all seriousness. Yep. Well, actually, you know, when you look at the current exchange rate of US dollar to Ether, yeah. I, I wonder if this one was even worth writing about, Doug. It was not quite $100 million. It was like, I don't know, 80, 90 million. It's almost not worth getting out of bed to write about. So, of course. You said very cynically. <laughs> Yes, this was yet another decentralized finance DeFi company disaster. You wouldn't know it to go to their website. The company's called Harmony. They're essentially a blockchain smart contract company. You go to their website, it's still full of how great they are. If you go to their official blog from their website, there is a story on there, which is Lost Funds Investigation Report. But that's not these lost funds. That's those lost funds. That's from back in January. Oh, my God. When I think it was only something like five million back, maybe even less, Doug, um, that somebody Mm -hmm. made off with. And that's the last story on their blog. They do have information on Twitter about it, to be fair. And they have published a blog article somewhere on medium.com, which details what little they seem to know. It sounds like they had a whole lot of funds that were locked up centrally to make the wheels work. And... To allow those things to be moved in and out, they were using what's called a multi-signature or multi-sig approach. One private key wouldn't be enough to authorize transferring out any of these particular funds. There were five people who were authorized and two of them had to come in together. And apparently each private key was stored, sort of split in half, if you like, 
the person had a password to unlock it and they needed to get some key material from a key server and apparently each private key used a different key server but apparently we don't know how it happened did somebody collude or did somebody just think they'd be really clever and say hey I'll share my key with you you share your key with me just in case it'll like be extra backup and the crooks managed to get two private keys not one and so they were able to pretend to be more than one person and they were able to unlock this large amount of funds and transfer them to themselves and that added up to some 80 million plus US dollars worth of ether and then it seems that Harmony like they did back in January when they had the previous ripoff they they did that you know what what everyone's doing these days dear mr whitehead dear <laughs> lovely crook if you send the funds back we'll write it up as a bug bounty we'll rewrite history and we'll try not to let you get prosecuted and we'll, we'll say it was all in the name of research but please give us our money back and you think oh golly that smacks a desperation but i guess that's all they've got yeah, i like <laughs> that know, they're it's... they're offering one percent of what was stolen and then um the icing on the cake is they will advocate for no criminal charges when funds are returned, which seems hard to guarantee. Yeah, I guess that's all they can say, right? It, well, certainly in, in England, you can have things called private prosecutions. They don't have to be brought by the state. So you can do a criminal prosecution as a private individual or as a charity or as a public body mm-hmm. um, if the state doesn't want to prosecute. But you don't get the opposite, where you're the victim of a crime and you say, oh, well, I know that guy. He was drunk out of his mind. And he crashed mm-hmm. into my car, but he repaired it. Don't prosecute him. Yeah, the state no, will no. probably go, you know what? It's, it's actually not, not it up to you. Yeah. So it doesn't seem to have worked. Whoever it is has already transferred something like 17,000 ether or something, just shy of 20 million US, I think, out of the account where they'd originally collected the stuff. So it's looking as though this is all going down the gurgler. I don't know why I'm laughing, Doug. This just keeps happening. I, I don't. There's got to be a better way to lock down these accounts. So they've gone from uh, two parties having to co-sign to four parties now. Is that does that fix this problem, or why? Why does this keep happening? Yeah. Hey. Well, two wasn't enough, so I'll go to four. Well, I don't know. Does that make it better or the same or worse? I mean, the point is, it depends on how the crooks and why the crooks were able to get those two keys. Did they just target the five people and they got lucky with two of them and failed with three? In which case you can argue that making it four out of five instead of two out of five, well, it will raise the bar a bit further. But what if the system, the way that they've actually orchestrated the keys, means that the reason the crooks got two of them is there was a single point of failure for any number of keys? And that's just what we don't know. So just go, oh, we'll go from two to four. It doesn't necessarily solve the problem in exactly the same way that if someone steals your phone and they guess your lock code and you've got six digits you think i know i'm gonna go to a 10 digit lock code that'll be much more secure if the reason the crooks got your lock code is that you have it have a habit of writing it down on a piece of paper <laughs> and leaving it in your mailbox yeah. just in case you're locked out of your house and you forget They'll go back and get the 10-digit, the 20-digit, the 5,000-digit lock code. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. And something tells me this won't be the last of these stories. This is called Harmony Blockchain Loses Nearly $100 Million Due to Hacked Private Keys on NakedSecurity.Sophos.com. 
And now we've got a bug fix for a bug fix in OpenSSL. Yes, we've spoken about OpenSSL several times on the podcast, mainly because it's one of the most popular third-party cryptographic libraries out there. So lots of software uses it. And the problem is that when it has a bug, there are loads of operating systems, particularly lots of Linuxes, shit with it that need to update. And even on platforms that have their own separate cryptographic libraries, like the Windowses and the Mac OSes of the world, you may have apps that nevertheless bring along their own copy of OpenSSL, either compiled in or brought along into the, the application folder. And you need to go and update those too. Now, fortunately, this is not a super dangerous bug, but it's kind of an annoying sort of bug that's a great reminder to software developers that sometimes the devil's in the details that surround the trophy code. This bug is another version of the bug that was fixed in the previous bug fix. It's actually in a script that ships along with OpenSSL that some operating systems use creates a special searchable hash index of system certificate authority certificates. So it's a special script you run called C underscore rehash, certificate rehash. And it takes a directory with a list of certificates that have the names of the people who issued them and converts it into a list based on hashes, which is just very convenient for searching and indexing. So some operating systems run this script regularly as a convenience and it turned out that if you could create a certificate with a weird name with magic special characters in it, just like the dollar round brackets in Folina or the dollar squiggly brackets in Log4Shell, basically they would take the file name off disk and they would use it blindly as a system, a command shell command line argument. And anyone who's written Unix shell commands or Windows shell commands knows that some characters have special superpowers like dollar round brackets and greater than sign which overwrites files the pipe character which says send the output into another command and run it and so it was if you like poor attention to detail in what you might call an ancillary script that isn't really part of the cryptographic library basically this was just a script that many people probably never considered but it was delivered by OpenSSL, packaged in with it, in many operating systems, popped into a system location where it became executable and used by the system for what you might call useful cryptographic housekeeping. So the version you want is 3.0.4 or 1.1.1p for Papa. But having said that, there's now, while we're recording this, there's a big fuss going on about the need for OpenSSL 3.0.5, a completely different bug, a buffer overflow in some special accelerated RSA cryptographic calculations, which is probably going to need fixing. So by the time you hear this, if you're using OpenSSL 3, there might be yet another update. The good side, I suppose, Doug, is that when these things do get noticed, the OpenSSL team do seem to get onto the problem and uh, push out patches pretty quickly. Great. We'll keep an eye on that and keep an eye out for the 3.0.5. Yes, just but just to be clear, when the 3.0.5 comes out, there won't be a matching 1.1.1 Q for Quebec. 
because this bug is in new code that was introduced in the OpenSSL 3. And if you're wondering, just like the iPhone never had iPhone 2, <laughs> then there was no OpenSSL 2. <laughs> okay, and we're, uh, we've got some advice uh, for starting with uh, update OpenSSL as soon as you can, obviously. Yes. Even though this is not in the cryptographic library, but in a script, you might as well, because if your operating system has the OpenSSL package, this buggy script will almost certainly be in it, and it will probably be installed where somebody with your worst interests at heart could probably get at it, possibly even remotely, if they really wanted to. Okay, and then we've got consider retiring the C rehash utility if you're using it. Uh, yes, the C underscore rehash. It's actually a sort of legacy Perl script that just runs other programs insecurely. You can actually use a built-in part of the OpenSSL app itself, OpenSSL space rehash. And if you want to know more about that, you can just type OpenSSL space rehash space minus help. All right, and then we've said this time and time again, sanitize your inputs and outputs. Absolutely. Never assume that input that you get from someone else is safe to use just as you received it. And when you've processed data that you received from elsewhere or that you've read in from somewhere else and you're going to hand it on to some, someone else, do the nice thing and check that you're not passing them dud information first. Now, obviously, you would hope that they would check their inputs, but if you check your outputs as well, then it just makes assurance double sure. Okay, and then finally, be vigilant for multiple errors when reviewing code for specific types of bug. Yes, I thought that was worth reminding people about because there was one bug which was where Perl performed what's called command substitution, which says, run this external command with these arguments, get the output, and use the output as part of the new command. And it was in sending the arguments to that command that something went wrong. That was patched. A special function was written that checked the inputs properly, but it seems that nobody went through really carefully and said, did the person who wrote this utility originally use a similar programmatic trick? In other words, let's just shell out to a system function elsewhere in the same code. And if they looked more carefully, they would have found that, yes, there's a place where they do a hash calculation using an external program, uh, and there's a place where they do file copying using an external function. One had been checked and fixed, and the other had not been found. All right, good advice. And that article is called OpenSSL Issues a Bug Fix for the Previous Bug Fix on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And as the sun slowly begins to set on our show for today, uh, let's hear from one of our readers on the OpenSSL article we just discussed. Reader Larry links to an XKCD webcomic called Exploits of a Mom. You can find it. I implore you to go. I, I realize me trying to verbally explain a webcomic is not really great fodder for a podcast, but go to xkcd.com slash 327. You can see it yourself. All you so. need to do, Doug, because many listeners will know and always be hoping that someone would have commented this. I was. It's the one about little bobby tables. Okay. <laughs> well, all right. <laughs> it's become a kind of internet meme in its own yeah. right. The scene opens up. A mom gets a phone call from her son's school that says, hi, this is your son's school. We're having some computer trouble. And she says, oh, dear, did he break something? And they say, in a way. <laughs> and they say, did you really name your son Robert? apostrophe, 
close parentheses, semicolon, drop table students, semicolon, dash, dash. Oh, yes. Little Bobby Tables, we call him. And they say, well, whatever. Well, we've lost this year's student records. I hope you're happy. And she says, and I hope you've learned to sanitize your database inputs. (laughs) Very good. Yes. A little bit of a naughty mum. Remember, we're saying sanitize your inputs and your outputs. So don't go out of your way to trigger bugs just to be a smarty pants. But she's right. They shouldn't just take any old data that they're given, make up a command string with it, and assume that it'll all be right. Because not everybody plays by the rules. It's from 2007, and it still holds up. So if you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at selfos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles. Or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.